Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Hello and welcome to Legitimate. I'm your host, Mike. This is my wife, Rochelle, my co-host, and we're here to share our legitimate perspectives on how to get ahead and stay ahead in law, business, and life. I'm the managing partner at Poulton & Naroyan, a business litigation firm here in town. I'm also a real estate investor, inventor, and do a few other things. And my wife here is also an attorney at the Arizona Credit Law Group, X firm and a couple other businesses she runs. Why don't you tell everybody what you do, Rochelle? Hi, I'm Rochelle Poulton. I'm also an attorney, and I own the Arizona Credit Law Group and a bunch of closely held companies, including today's sponsor, X-Firm, helping people with financial transaction planning. Rocking it out. (laughs) Today's going to be a little different than our typical podcast because we're not going to go through the rackets and the LBL moment and those other things. And the reason we're going to skip that today is because we have a bunch of our friends on. You can see all of our guests here. And uh, I'm going to let Rochelle introduce him in just a moment. But these are all of our business buddies, uh, people we hang out with and do business with. And they're here to talk about the challenges of being a new business owner or an entrepreneur. We're going to talk about the basics and the pitfalls and the things that we all wish we had done differently. So, Rochelle, why don't you introduce our guests? All right. First up, we have the amazing Annie Cav with Annie Cav Salon Studio. Annie, why don't you tell everybody about how who you are, what you do, and how you help businesses. So my name is Annie. I've been a licensed hairdresser in the state of Arizona for just shy of 20 years next year. Uh, But uh, I own a small uh, private hair salon studio uh, in Central Phoenix, and I have a really mixed group of clients and really mixed group of friends. Most of them are business owners, like the ones that are here on this podcast today. And I basically sell self-confidence and some serious love of that reflection in the mirror. And it's therapy where you get to be pretty when you leave, not ugly cry face when you leave. Hopefully. <laughs> <Fingers crossed. laughs> so true. Thank you, Annie. All right. <laughs> Hi, everybody. My name is Irene Flosky. I am the owner of Independence Insurance Group. I have been in the insurance industry for almost 17 years. Had my agency for almost 11. We help individuals and business owners shop around for the right combination of coverage and rents. We're all required to have insurance. So we become our client's insurance department <laughs> off-site. So we, we pride ourselves in becoming our um, our clients uh, part, of, part of their... Love it. Yes, she's amazing. All right. Kelly, tell everyone about your awesomeness. <laughs> <laughs> You're so sweet, Rochelle. Thank you for having me on. I'm Kelly Lorenzen. I own a business development firm here in Arizona, KLM Consulting. I help clients with uh, consulting, marketing, and project management. Most all amazing entrepreneurs and nonprofits here in the Valley. Such an understatement for what she does. (laughs) (laughs) I'm so happy to know her. (laughs) All right, Kenyatta, you're up. Hey, everybody. Uh, First, I want to say I love all you amazing humans on this call. I'm so excited about this conversation. And my name is Kenyatta Turner, and I'm the founder of Freedom Empire Consulting. And I'm also uh, the chief behavioral superpowers consultant for DreamSmart Academy, and I also serve on their nonprofit, um, I'm sorry, their uh, national advisory board. So what I do in my business is I help my clients to build and shield their freedom empires. And I do that in three ways. One, I coach. I'm a behavioral superpowers coach. When I do that, I get to decode human behavior. 
and optimize performance using scientifically validated insights, which I love. And then um, influence is the second piece. And my behavioral superpower is influencer. What that means is I don't shut up. But really, I love talking to people and helping and being in front of the room and bringing people together and having an opportunity to share good things with good people. So that's really what I look at that. And then the last piece is protect. So I work with a company called Legal Shield that I've been with for six years. And with that company, I'm able to help my clients to shield their empires with legal services and identity theft protection for their family or for business owners. Awesome. 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 So, all right, let's start with a quick icebreaker question into our topic today, starting and growing a business if you could give yourself advice 10 years ago, what would it be? I thought about this for a bit before we started the podcast here, and I don't think I have one piece of advice. I think I would sit myself down and spend hours talking to myself <laughs> about what, what I've learned over the last decade that would have changed my course somewhat if I had known it earlier. I think one of the biggest learning experiences for me in owning and operating these businesses, and especially in uh, helping other business owners with their businesses, which I do a lot of as an attorney, one of the biggest things I've taken away from it is the importance of building a personal network. But that's something you hear a lot. And it's something I certainly knew about 10 years ago and had already begun doing. But what I've learned over the course of my business career so far is that it's better not to think of it as networking, unless you just love networking, you're really into it. If you're a super networker the way Kenyatta is and the way some other people are, then sure, call it networking, think of it that way and do it. But it's really just making friends. It's really curating your friend group and figuring out who you're going to hang out with and spend time with and what you're going to do with them. And for me, developing a professional network started really in law school. I had a bit of a network before that in construction management, but I hadn't really treated it as a, a good professional networking process the way I did starting in law school. And law school is when I learned that when you make good friends, people you really genuinely like spending time with, you can find ways to do business with them. And you can learn things from your friends about business and life and success that you may never have thought you would learn from them. And it's not about having that business relationship first. It's about having the friendship first and putting yourself in proximity to people who will become successful and who have things that they can teach you. And over the last, uh, I guess it's been eight years that I've been in law practice and, and have had the law firm, most of my friends now are business owners and entrepreneurs and other professionals because that's who I gravitate towards because we share common life experiences and we share uh, interests in business and business development that are, are genuine interests. We do this because we like it. <laughs> we do it because it's something we enjoy spending time on and thinking about and moving towards. And so I find that I can really hang out with people like that, the people that we have on this podcast today, as well as a lot of my other friends. And we just all get along well and we end up doing business and it, it works out. So that would be the advice that I would have for myself 10 years ago is primarily to think of business networking as a friend development process, not a business development process. And I could have made a lot more progress sooner if I had done that. Yeah, we don't have like playgrounds or classes anymore. So how do you meet people as adults? 
especially as business owners when you don't have time and it's at events, networking. <laughs> That's how you meet the people in your life. So I totally agree with that. That's some pretty solid advice. Uh, what about you, Irene? What advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? Well, I think that I would tell myself to not be afraid of selling. At first, I would hold back considerably. I was I was shy. I was afraid of asking questions. And that took a lot of repetition, really. And what I realized over time, because you have good days and bad days when you're meeting people. When you have a bad day, or I should say a not so good day, people don't know what you're thinking. Uh, so they don't know that you are shy. They don't know that you're nervous. So um, I learned to just throw myself at it and go. But learning how to sail was a process that I would have liked to have acquired a lot faster. Um, so I would tell myself, don't worry. They have a need. You have a product or service that they want. Offer it. You can you can help cover that need. I like it. And I think that a uh, big difference also, because uh, a lot of a lot of people frown upon the concept of selling something. Uh, but I think that the difference is what is your intention? Is your intention to to help somebody to cover a need? to um, help them uh, get a service or product that they that they need, then it's all good. But if your intention is to take advantage, to manipulate, that is definitely not the way to go. So it's something that I think all of us salespeople should consider is, you know, what's, what's up with my intention? Uh, what is my intention? And, and just take a moment and reflect on that. Yeah, we're all selling something. Absolutely. Yeah, that would be near the top of my list of self-advice would be remember that everything is sales. When you're a business owner, it's all sales. ABC, man. Always be closing. <laughs> Always be closing. And there's nothing <laughs> wrong with that. You have to be comfortable with that. Who wants to go next? Volunteers? I'll go next. <laughs> 10 years ago, I was in my second business, I think, if, if I'm doing the math correctly. And I think I, a couple things. One is outsource quicker. You know, you think you can't afford to have the help, you know, because you're just barely making it. But if you can pay somebody else to do the things that are taking you too long, you know, and you can do what you're good at, I wish I would have known that. At least now I can teach people that. <laughs> In part, of, That's what I do. Part of my business is I waited too long to hire an assistant. I waited too long to outsource bookkeeping, outsource, you know, all of it. And so... That would be for sure one of them. And then uh, treating employees as you treat your clients, right? You have to be, <laughs> you know, you, you can say, oh, well, I was always good at not, you know, becoming too close to them because in my first business, my business partner got real close to, you know, every assistant. And then I had to fire him because she got too close to him. <laughs> so I, you know, so that, that was um, probably not the right way, but now it's so nice because, you know, their partners, your, your staff and your employees can be partners and, and treating them the same as, as you would um, your clients has definitely made it nice, you know, nicer to work with everybody in my team. Awesome. What about you, Annie? I'm just, I'm really resonating with what you guys have all said already. 
already so far, some of which I'm resonating with today, um, especially the outsourcing of things. Kenyatta and I talk a lot about leveraging other people's knowledge um, in order to run your business. So uh, 10 years ago, um, I was trying to think of where I was 10 years ago. Um, I wasn't anywhere near being a business owner, but when I started my first business, uh, I don't think I had a clear idea of how big the actual picture was. So the advice I'd give myself is to be thinking about the big picture because I thought, oh, I do this full time. So I should do that full time as a business. But doing what you do full time and running a business are two full time jobs. Um, running your social media is a full time job, right, Kelly? Um, doing your bookkeeping can occasionally become a full-time job. There's so much more work than just the job you actually perform that is the kind of core and heart and soul of your business. And I got incredibly overwhelmed and I did not ask for help. Yeah, I didn't like leverage other people's things, didn't hire out the things that I did um, or the things that I needed done. And, you know, it becomes an avalanche and you just get really behind and not everyone gets a chance to hit a reset button. So I'm very grateful that I did. But now when I approach my business, I'm thinking about what is that going to look like in three months when I'm completely overwhelmed with this new thing that I've just put on. So scheduling, making time for the things that need to happen, but like really thinking about the big picture of the whole business. That's great advice. That certainly <laughs> is. And we'll have a lot of discussion about, about that, that as we go on. <laughs> exactly right. Even the smallest small business is still uh, part of a huge ecosystem, the whole world's ecosystem. And the complexity required even to keep a very small business operating is a whole lot greater than what most people would expect unless you've done it before. Uh, generally, I, I think what happened... <laughs> no, go ahead. I think what happens is um, you just, you know, you only know what you know when you know it. And being a small business owner, it is, you know, one third, oh, I can, t- I totally got this. And one third, uh, I'm sure it'll be okay. And one third, I have no idea what I'm doing. And that's the fun of it because you're never really ready for the thing that you take on, right? But sort of being open to the like, oh my God moment of like how big this little thing you thought you were going to do, the small, just, choice that you made to do it for yourself and how big that is was so scary. (laughs) It still is scary, but it's way more fun now than it used to be. And that's where the importance of a good network comes into play because you're right. We don't know what we don't know. And a lot of the things we are not going to learn unless we go through them, but there are other things that we can learn from someone else's experience. We don't have to make an error ourselves, so it's crucial to have a good, uh, a good network that you can reach out to and uh, confide in, and uh, present your challenges, talk about problems, and and how to solve them. Because um, you know, just just like we do, we get together. We're all very different in many ways, but we also have a lot of commonalities. So situations problems, challenges that one of you have gone through, I may have experienced and vice versa. And that's what we do. That's how we make our lives easier and our businesses more efficient just through the knowledge and experience of, of others in our in our network. Absolutely. So true. All right, Kenyatta, you're up. What advice would you give yourself 10 years ago? Mm. Well, 10 years ago, I wasn't in business yet. 
So I was still working my jobby job, I like to call it. And so my advice to be would be to start a side gig of some kind. So if I know what I know now, probably would have made some different decisions, maybe. And if I did make any different decisions, because I think everything happens perfectly in some psycho kind of way. But if I were to do it differently, I would have stayed working at the colleges for a time, I think, but I would have started building something on the side. I would have started working on my exit strategy as opposed to doing what I did, which is totally ran and jumped screaming off the cliff and luckily sprouted wings. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, like that, I wouldn't recommend doing it that way. So if I knew what I knew now, I would have started a business sooner. So I guess that's probably my biggest advice to myself is like, why did you wait so long to start a business? And, and again, business ownership and entrepreneurship is not for everyone, but I probably would have taken a closer look at myself and maybe talked to some people like the network we talked about and really just kind of explored it much sooner uh, because it was, you know, 10 years ago, I, I worked, yeah, I've only been in my business just over six years. So I still was at the jobby job for another four, you know, four years, you know, so I just would have started sooner because why wait? For those of you who are listening, who are you know, starting a business, now we're going to tell you all kinds of reasons why it's crazy. And, <laughs> and, and, and after listening to us, you might be thinking, oh, I'm not doing that. <laughs> <laughs> However, it's so rewarding. <laughs> you know? No, but if you find a thing that absolutely you're built to do, do that. And if that is working a job, then do that. Uh, but when you recognize that it's not, then do something about it. So, Agreed. All great, great advice. Working a job is the right thing for many people. Yeah. Uh, One thing that I have certainly learned being a business owner in my whole adventure of entrepreneurship is this is not for everybody. Uh, A lot of people who have never done it before may look at business ownership as being some kind of holy grail of independence uh, and wealth generation and the epitome of the American dream. Perhaps it is all of those things. It's also extremely difficult and there's no guarantee of any level of success. (laughs) One thing you learn very quickly, I think it's probably one of the first lessons every business owner learns is that there is no direct correlation between how hard you work or how good your work product is and how much profit you make in your business. It's not like a job where if you do a really good job, you're going to get a raise eventually, or you can quit and go work somewhere else and get a better better pay. It, nobody cares how, how hard many hours you, work, you work, how many hours you spend. It doesn't make any difference uh, unless you are working productively towards your business goals. Now, hard work is a prerequisite to success. I don't think you'll find any business owners who succeed without working very hard and putting in a lot of time. But you can't fix problems by working harder. Working harder is almost never going to get you over a hurdle that's impeding your business success. You're going to have to work smarter. And that's hard. It's harder to work smarter than it is to work harder. It really is. (laughs) That's the advice I would give myself 10 years ago is, you know, you can't measure success by how many hours you spend at the office. Nope. You know, early on, I was working, you know, 90, 100 hours a week sometimes. And a lot of the time, it was kind of insane. And, you know, I was extremely productive and I got a lot done. But, you know, now 
been open for eight years, it's like, well, I probably work like 40, maybe 50 hours a week and get like 50 times more done than I did when I first started. So figuring out how to work smarter is such a weird process because you don't really know what you don't know when you first start out in business, but spending the time to think about it, plan it out, you know, getting on some kind of organization system like the 12-week year goal planning, knowing what you want, and most importantly, taking care of yourself. I think I would really, really stress that to myself 10 years ago. (laughs) Do what you're going to do, but like, you know, don't work so hard. (laughs) (laughs) Add the self-care in there immediately. There's another one, right? Put that in at the beginning. Yeah. Take time for yourself. What does Kenyatta talk about? um, Intentional imbalance? Yes. Kenyatta's intentional imbalance. Yeah, intentional imbalance. Yes. Be mindful about when you take time away from your business. Yeah. So this is a, a fun group conversation we should have about startup costs. I don't think anyone ever realizes how expensive it is to start a business. I think we were talking about this a little bit earlier and, you know, however much you think it's going to cost to open your business, you should probably add a zero. Thoughts? (laughs) Double it. (laughs) Depending on what it is, I guess, right? Double it. (laughs) I think it, it depends on the business. There certainly are businesses where you can estimate your startup costs pretty accurately. Uh, and certainly, if you're experienced in starting a certain type of business, you can project it yep. pretty well. Uh, for example, restaurants. If you're opening a restaurant, you plan to open a bar or restaurant, you should be able to predict your startup costs pretty accurately down to a few tens of thousands. You may or may not want to put that much effort into projecting it. If you can swing a larger uncertainty than that, you may save a lot of time and effort by not budgeting it that accurately and just knowing ballpark what you're going to end up putting in. But you can be that accurate if you need to. On a million-dollar project, you can know within 50000 how much it's going to cost you to get open. Um, and if it And if it works well, that'll be <laughs> how much it costs you to get profitable. But with a lot of other types of businesses, you really are not going to know when you start how much you're in for. And you better have a, a pretty big cushion available to go way beyond your budget. Annie says double. I think that's fair, um, especially if that leaves you with uncertainty of several tens of thousands of dollars. I think you probably can't get any more specific than that in projecting the cost to open a business. Uh, Plus or minus 20 or 30 grand is going to be about the level of certainty you can get on that. And if you think these are big numbers, just wait till you open. All of your problems just grow as you grow. I remember in the beginning, like everything was a hundred bucks and then everything was a thousand bucks and everything became five grand and now everything's 10 grand. It's just ridiculous. (laughs) There's a saying among airplane owners that uh, (laughs) one airplane monetary unit is a thousand dollars. You just, you measure all your costs in AMUs. A thousand bucks here, a thousand bucks there. You can't do anything for less than a thousand bucks. <laughs> I think it's about that way with businesses. <laughs> well, with airplanes too, the second you peel that skin back, it's like, well, while we're in here, yeah, uh, my dad feels that way with his airplane. Like the costs just never stop because it's, oh, well, while it's in the shop and while they have this thing apart, and maybe if you have an older car or something like that, they, that this 
rule rings true still, but like, well, while, while we're at it, Um, right so i think that cost startup costs like something i think i was shocked about was that we had a like a real brick and mortar right so like opening up your own business where you get to do a home office or something like that those are really different right like um rachel like opening up an office is one thing and you know kenyatta your sort of mobile consulting business is a whole different type of startup costs um that it would be to open like a salon for example so um, but yeah, when you can't think about that big picture, you can't think about your startup costs. <laughs> you're like, oh yeah, totally got this. 500 bucks, it's fine. You're like, oh, oh, there. I need a couple of zeros and I'm going to double it. <laughs> okay. All right, here we go. <laughs> Well, and I also think, too, again, it's so much about the type of business, right? It's because a business, right? I mean, I guess if we want to, I don't know, get out the dictionary or whatever, but an easy way to describe it is either you have a way to get paid where, you know, you're on W-2 income or you have a way to get paid where you're not, right? I mean, we just want to be, we can easily kind of dis- differentiate from one from the other in that way. So if that's the case, something like driving for Uber is technically a business, so it what kind of startup business. costs are involved in that, right? Well, yeah, maintenance you, costs. Got, you already got the car. So if you have the car, then there's other costs. And you got to put little mints in the back and, you know, buy a charger and gas and tires and all those things to maintain it. So even still, there's costs involved. And I've talked to people who drive for like Uber or Lyft and they actually talk about how, wow, I didn't realize how much this ultimately was going to wind up costing me because in their mind, they're just thinking, oh, I just already have a car. I'm just going to drive people around. And then they realize, like you said, Rochelle, there actually are other costs involved that they need to be concerned about. And there's taxes. And there's taxes that you have to now pay on your own because someone's not taking it out of your paycheck. With me, with Legal Shield, when I joined, it was um, $75. That was literally the cost to start. Now, that's not the only cost. And a lot of network marketing companies might have low fees to get in, but there are other costs involved, depending on how you do your business and whether or not there's training or meetings and things. So all of those things are to be considered, even if it is something like a driving job or a consulting job that doesn't need a brick and mortar, they still start to add up and get very pricey, you know, depending on that nature. So yeah. You're going to join like networking organizations. You're looking at a couple hundred bucks a pop, you know, plus, you know, event tickets for stuff, plus, 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 plus. Um, <laughs> well, when we were all, you know, doing real latte meetings, you know, right, you know, you can, you can spend a couple hundred bucks at Starbucks doing some one-to-ones. <laughs> like, it adds what, up. what about Sip Happens? That adds up, you know. Yeah, definitely <laughs> added up. Of my budget. <laughs> but it was a necessary part of the budget. Absolutely. It's part of doing business. It's yeah. part of our now self-care. So Sip part Happens. Sanity. Yes. And it's part of Mike's networking group, right? We don't want to hang out with employees. We're all bosses. <laughs> we need other bosses in our lives to drink with. <laughs> yeah, you can find out more about us on Instagram at Phoenix Sip Happens, Sip Happens PHX. <laughs> the now virtual happy hour group. Yes. yes. But, uh, yeah. yeah. I, Kenyatta, I think it's interesting you brought up the network marketing businesses and in particular Legal Shield, since that was your route, one of your routes out of corporate America and into uh, independent business ownership. It's certainly true that the cheapest businesses to get started in are uh, MLMs or things like Uber and Lyft that are an existing platform where you're providing a service as an independent contractor. You're plugging into a business because you're not producing all the infrastructure. You don't have to create the brand. You don't have to set up your phone system. 
uh, and build a website from scratch and all of that other stuff. But the downside, one of the downsides is that you don't have control over that brand and that it's not yours. So you've got less upside potential perhaps than an independent business, but it's great that you bring those up because they really do reduce the capital requirement for somebody getting out of a W-2 job and becoming more independent in their income. It's a great way to do that for people who are inclined to do that sort of thing. And then I'll share something after that. I think that's the biggest shock for people leaving, you know, their W-2 job is, holy crap, where is my paycheck? You know, like, oh, no, you you eat what you kill, bro. Like, you have to, like, get out there and make money. Like, that's your job and cover your expenses and, and, and. So making that shift is, you know, can be a little intimidating. And for some people, you know, especially when you've got family and kids and you really haven't thought that through, you can really sink yourself with those kinds of expenses and and set yourself up for failure. So a slow transition out of the W-2 into your own business is probably advisable for people when you have dependents and you're the primary income earner. Right. Yeah. That's that side gig, you know, right. Keep the jobby job and building some side. That way you can have an exit strategy. Still think that's my biggest piece of advice I give to myself. Right. But I wouldn't do it over like that anyway, because it wouldn't work. However, for me, because I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be. But one thing I was going to add about that, Mike, how you mentioned, right. I started kind of with legal shield and had this platform that already existed. I didn't need to build a website. I didn't need to have the marketing materials. All of that was provided for me. And then <laughs> I start building, you know, freedom empire consulting where I don't have a website. There is no marketing materials. And then making that transition from, you know, a clear different, the clear difference from joining a business that's very turnkey, if you will, like a network network marketing company to then creating something of your own, literally from scratch, is an entirely different standpoint. And I've now seen both sides of that coin. And uh, so I will have to just second what Annie was saying and what Kelly was saying about figuring out a way to find people to help you sooner with all of that stuff, (laughs) you know, that specialized knowledge. Like I've got the specialized knowledge and what I know I'm really good at and the skills that I specifically own. But I'm also someone who tried to and tries to still even learn. I'm nosy. I want to know how everything works. I want I want to do everything, but that's not a smart thing to do always, right? And so figuring out that, especially when you get out of where everything's done for you and you have to create it, it's like as a business owner, we want to make all the decisions. Yay, we get to make all the decisions. And then, oh, we have to make all the decisions, <laughs> right? It's like what, what side of the coin is it that day? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think we- there's also an even broader scope of decisions that are available. This is something that I think many people don't necessarily consider about business ownership. And that is, it's not just that you have to make the decisions. It's that there is zero guidance on what decision you should make. Never mind which choice you should make within that decision. It's up to you to figure out what decisions need to be made and what all of your options are and pick the right one. and you'll be getting tons of unreliable advice in the form of sales pitches from everyone else's business that provides services that you could pay them money for. Everyone wants you to pay them money for services. And all of them will tell you that using their services are the right choice for your business and that whatever they're selling is the best thing for you and will solve your problem. So you look at all that noise coming in at you as a business owner and you're left to pick out which of those things are actually going to be helpful to you and which one is the best option. It's a total free-for-all. And it's kind of fun 
but it's also uh, at times quite nerve wracking because you can make very bad decisions for your business and not know it until much later. Yes. To that, I would add, identify what you're not naturally good at. Uh, <laughs> that's how I started. So I'm not good with numbers. So I don't try and do my bookkeeping or my payroll. Uh, I have an amazing bookkeeper that takes care of that because my time is better spent doing those tasks that I'm naturally good at, with, which are revenue-producing tasks that allow for me to pass those things to the people with those talents. So weeding out those things, you know, we have we have such a such a misconception about how the business owner is supposed to do everything. They're supposed to know how, how to do everything. And no, we just have to have the right team and the right network to take care of those tasks that we're just not naturally talented. That is absolutely true. It is not your job to do every single thing in your whole business. Uh, and that's you literally can't. Yeah, I struggle <laughs> with that all the time because there's all kinds of stuff I want to do and especially hands-on things. Uh, you know, if, if a repair needs to be done around the office, I want to do it. If something needs to be improved physically, I want to do it. I'll go get the tool bag, but that's not my job as the managing partner of a law firm, and it's not a good use of my time. <laughs> I can hire somebody at at 5% of my hourly billing rate to do skilled construction work. So I should be hiring somebody else to do that, and I should be selling my time instead. And I have to force myself to make that decision every single time because I would rather pick up the screwdriver. <laughs> Can I clip each one of you to give me commercials for why I do this business? <laughs> yes, actually, you can because this podcast yes. is Creative Commons license. So you'll have the recording and you can use it for whatever you want. <laughs> there you go. We had a we had a sip happen once that. where I distinctly remember sitting at Pocino's in between Irene and Kenyatta and Rochelle, which Kelly, I hope you come and join us when we can be face to face again. But I remember looking around the table thinking, asking you ladies, so how much time do you all spend on your bookkeeping every week? And I swore you all were going to spit wine out of your nose laughing at me. (laughs) Honey, we don't do that. So then I was like, oh, right, because I have that idea like, oh, I'm a small business owner. I have like full, you know, I got my fingers in all the all the jam jars of everything. And Kenyatta, all the time later, is like, yo, baby girl, come here. Like, that's not how we do things. <laughs> like, no. Okay, because cause I am a hairdresser. I'm not an accountant. I'm really good at bringing in the numbers. I don't know what to do with them after that. So now I have a really awesome accountant. And I'm feeling like, okay, like, okay, this is the most, like, real I've felt is when I have help where I get to focus on just what I'm doing. Like, Mike not changing light bulbs in his office or things like that. Yeah. A project standpoint, because I got to give, you know, Kelly some props here because it, it might not be something that's ongoing, but it could even be just a project that needs to be taken off a plate. Like I'm feeling a little peace right now because she's helping me with a project, which is something that I would be figuring out all of those things and probably not very well. Now, actually, let me take that back. I'd rock it. Yeah, you nail it. But still, but I, don't mean, but I can't, you know, like I can't do, I can't do all the things. I can't pick up the screwdriver too. Right. You know, like Mike says. And so that's such a powerful, 
powerful lesson that even is still difficult for me to understand and grasp and do uh, because I'm someone who wants to do it and probably could got controlling factors in there as well, you know, and I'm nosy. So all of those different things, but, um, you know, either learn, what I hear someone say the other day, either pay someone to do it or pay someone to teach you how to do it. Because sometimes the time that we spend trying to learn how to do the thing that ultimately maybe is going to be our thing, if someone could have just paid us, if we could have just paid someone just to train us real quick, then we would have that knowledge and be able to move forward with it. But we spend hours teaching ourselves even. So I, I, I like that idea of that because there are some things that I need to be taught how to do because it is a function that is going to rely on me to make it happen. You know, So I think there's just two sides to that as well. Well, Kenyatta, that raises a couple interesting points. One of them is, as a business owner, you may not have to do all of the jobs in your business, but you have to know how to supervise them. And generally, in order to effectively supervise a position, you have to know how to do that position. Yep. You don't necessarily have to be great at that job, especially if it's a job that requires a lot of manual skill or artistic vision or something like that. But you have to know the elements of the job and a lot of the nuances of it well enough that you can spot a poor performer and also well enough that you can spot great talent. Uh, and you, you got to be able to handle that. And that does require a lot of learning on an ongoing basis and include, including some pretty in-depth learning about things that you're not necessarily going to be doing in your daily life. So it is worthwhile as a business owner to pay for that education and experience and that may mean that you go through trainings that some of your lower level employees would go through, or even if you're going to be hiring independent contractors to handle a certain aspect of your business, you may want to go get some education on that area uh, informally so that you know enough to supervise that position effectively and know whether you're getting good work product and good value. But this reminds me of two axioms of business that I've heard from very successful business people. And one of them is uh, never do yourself something that you can pay somebody else to do. And another one is never use your own money when you can borrow somebody else's. <laughs> Those are both strategies that virtually all extremely successful industrialists have used, both of those strategies. And that is seek investment, use other people's money and pay other people to do the work. Your job is to have the idea and direct the action. I would love to use those strategies, but I find that in practice, it's very difficult to do both of those things. It's a whole lot easier said than done because getting somebody else to do something for you is often harder than doing it yourself. And that's a lot of what we've just been talking about. Even if they're going to do a better job and even if it's going to be cheaper, the difficulty of finding that person, either an employee or an outside contractor, and then specifying the job to them and then supervising them while they do it and accepting and using that work product in your business flow, that's hard. And we all have this temptation to just try to do it ourselves instead. And it's something I still fight. And it's the same with seeking investment. It's easier to pay for it yourself than it is to go find somebody else, sell them on your vision, and then be accountable to them for the money they invested. A whole lot easier to just use your own cash if you can scrape it together. That's something I want to throw out there, and I guess I'd be interested in hearing what all of you think about those axioms of business and how you implement those kinds of strategies. Business ownership, I think, oh, sorry, Kelly. <laughs> business ownership requires uh, a change in mindset from I can't afford it to how can I afford it? How yeah, can I make it absolutely. happen? 
and looking for those for those resources and those people that um, can finance you or can carry you or whatever. Uh, if it's as long as it's justifiable, that expense. That's such a that's such an important thing from business ownership is to switch that mindset from can't afford it, can do it to oh my gosh, I need this to make I need this to happen. How can I make it happen? Yeah. Absolutely. It's so true. I think that's really important. That encapsulates a lot of the whole business mindset right there. Things that are expensive in business are expensive because they have great value to the business. Uh, if it's something that's a good choice, the reason it's it costs so much is because it will deliver results for your business that are worth that. If you're looking at buying a piece of equipment that costs half a million dollars for a machine shop, the reason that you're considering that purchase and the reason that, that piece of equipment can be sold for half a million dollars is because it's going to make you a whole bunch of money. So it's quite justifiable to go to a bank and say, I want to borrow half a million dollars to buy this giant Whatever. CNC laser cutting table. Whatever it is that's worth half a million bucks that you need in your business, you're going to be able to say, here, this is how much money I'm going to make from it. This is the revenue we expect. And this is why it's going to be totally justifiable to make the loan payments and get profit out of it. Um, and that's how you've got to look at these things. But yeah, it, it sure can be difficult to justify writing a big check for a capital investment. Well, another thing is early on um, having the coaches in your corner that can, you know, give you the advice. So whether you're starting and, you know, being a part of an MLM or my first business was in real estate, you know, building a huge, you know, real estate practice. And along the way, I kept saying, well, I do have a coach. I do have a coach, but he was exactly just a real estate coach. He wasn't a financial coach, right? He wasn't an attorney. He wasn't a, you know, so if you ha make sure if you're starting a business that you have somebody for each thing, somebody who's been through it, somebody who knows. So if you kept going back to the advice is, is making sure you have all those people in your corner. If they've been there, done that. And so they know how to help you is, I think is another huge point for people to make sure, you know, they're like, well, I don't need a coach. I can't afford a coach or I can't, you know, justify it. You can't do it on your own. There's no reason to do it on your own. You know, it's more important to, to grow with the coach than, you know, um, than not have anybody in struggle so long and then go, wait, oh, great. I should have hired somebody two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> but this is what Mike was talking about, right? This is why we all do business with each other. We mm -hmm. hire each other out because we don't need supervision as much. We don't need to be you know, babysat as we perform the job that we've been hired to do. And that's why we network and do business with people that are in our networks, because we know as other business owners, that they can just handle that, that themselves, like that's their job, you can like sit back and relax while they're getting their job done. Mm -hmm. So that's why we all use each other. That's why the network is so important. <laughs> it's, huge. it's huge. You might spend so much time. I mean, I think we went through 15 employees in my first business, you know, 15 assistants trying to find the perfect one to do the perfect thing. You know, it's like, no, pick one to do this and one to do that and one to do this. And the next business, the same thing. Good thing we outsourced, you know, then you learn a little more, right? Okay. Outsource this. Okay. I'm good at this. Outsource that, you know, have have us one more employee or one more person than you think you can afford because you will make the money and you will make enough money to pay for them, right? Mm -hmm. You have that responsibility. So um, I think that's, that's an, another important 
That is. And they talk about employees. Employees. Employees versus independent contractors. People who only worked in a job don't understand the employer-employee relationship very well at all. Even though they've been in employer-employee relationships their whole lives, if you haven't seen it from the other side, you're missing a huge part of the picture. And a big part of that that you discover very quickly as a business owner when you try to hire your first employee is the employee's take-home pay is a tiny fraction of what it costs the business to have that employee. When you look at the hourly rate of an hourly employee, for example, the employee is going to take home a fraction of that less their deductions. So they get less than the hourly rate. But the employer pays substantially more than the hourly rate, uh, upwards of 50% extra. uh, And that overage is called labor burden. And it varies by industry and job title, but it's generally between a third and half. So if you're paying somebody 15 bucks an hour, they're costing the business well over $20 an hour, even though they're taking home 12 or 13. So to the employee, they feel like they're getting pennies. To the employer, even a very inexpensive employee is very expensive. And especially as a small business just starting out, funding it with your own savings and taking these huge risks on whether you're going to make money or not, that first employee is crushingly expensive. Employees are vastly more expensive than almost anything else in your business. And they don't feel that way. (laughs) (laughs) No idea. You know what, Mike? Mike, that's so that's so interesting you say that because there's a, a, a phrase that I've heard for years and been it always keeps coming up. And I, I teach this to my, my students in my GD classes a lot more talking about when they're looking for work and they're looking to get into a career and what are some of the benefits of having a job versus having a business. And we have these conversations. But one of the things that has always been said is that um, and it's not might not be true for everyone. So I'll just put that disclaimer out there is that uh, employees typically may only work as hard as they need to to not get fired. And the businesses typically only pay them as much as they need to so that person won't quit. Yeah. And, and and that's along the lines of basically what you just said, you know, because, again, you know, the employee doesn't feel like they're getting paid enough, regardless of what you pay them. Right. Especially if they you know, typically that doesn't happen. And how often do, do people go to work when they're trading time for money and just show up and give one hundred and fifty percent? Yeah. You know, like how often does that really happen um, now being someone who. Um, hasn't had hired employees in that regard, right? You know, independent contractors, yes, but even when I was working in colleges, it wasn't my money I was spending. It was the, it was the, the, the college's money I was spending, right? But I had lots of employees. And so it was seeing that cycle of that thought process. And then there's even times where I'm obviously feeling that as the employee going, y'all ain't paying me enough, you know what I mean, for what I'm doing. But I was also that one who showed up at 150% because I loved what I did and I was in the right field. But how many times are people in a square peg round hole where they're not in the right job and they're like, man, if I can just show up, do my thing, get out of here and try not to get fired, you know, and the employer is like, well, I'm going to give you like a 2%, you know, raise. And if you take it, yeah, you know, when the budget is actually maybe more than that. Right. So anyway, that's just some of the things you had me thinking about as you were talking about that. I think you also have to remember corporate America versus small business. Like when you are a small business Mm -hmm. owner, your employees are going to wear a bunch of different hats. So when you hire a receptionist and, you know, their job is to answer the phone, but also to process mail 
and occasionally take the mail to the post office, when you've got someone in your organization that's like, well, that's not my job, run. <laughs> yeah. Not work. Well, oh, that's not your job. You're right. None of this is your job anymore. <laughs> you can't guess what? We all wear all the hats in a small business. Yeah. There's no there's no HR. There's no IT. There's no, you know, separate payroll to person. There's no like who's my manager? It's you. It's you all the time in all of the roles. And, you know, you need people that can be on your team and support your business and your organization that you can get along with and do their job well. So I think when, you know, you're initially hiring people for the first time, it's it's kind of an intimidating process because people interview very well. You know, like someone like bothered to apply to your ad and they send in a cover letter and you talked to them and they didn't sound like a psycho and you met with them in person and they were charming and wonderful. And then, you know, you were on the job for like a week and you're like, I don't really actually know, you know, how to manage you or like what you should be doing. <laughs> <laughs> like it is such a crazy transition, you know, and, and employees don't know that about business owners. They don't know that you're kind of winging it too. They don't know that it's your <laughs> job interview and that you've never even written a job description before and that you're not really even sure if the role you're hiring for is the role you need or not or whether you have enough work to keep them busy 40 hours a week because you have no idea what they can produce. <laughs> so when in doubt, ask them trick questions in their interviews. <laughs> It's so important to understand that the, the difference in between business owners and employees is the way of thinking. Otherwise, everybody would be a business owner. And there's a need for both. Yes. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So normally, employees are, they may say they're money motivated. Quite often, they're not. Uh, I think that's a key factor. Business owners are usually money driven. They, uh, they get motivated with money. Employees, not all the time. Probably less often than not. Um, employees, some of them like uh, time off. Sometimes they like a pat on the back and recognition and to feel part of a team. So it's really important uh, to identify what motivates each person in our team so we can you know, push them that way to, to become better in what they do. Agreed. So that I have to jump a in. Great point. And and I like to jump in, and I have to get all behavioral sciency with you guys for a moment because she's absolutely is what she's speaking about. Because these things are who we are anyway, and it doesn't matter. Someone's going to show up one way, and that's going to be what's going to motivate them. Like she said, those are already wired. So specifically to the entrepreneurial standpoint, when it comes to the behavioral traits that research has shown that entrepreneurs have a better chance at being able to survive, <laughs> right? Again, slim chance, right? But even a better chance, maybe. But I think it really comes down to the team. So there's five different, five different traits. Resilience, risk-taking, creativity, work ethic, and charisma. And if it's been shown that if a person has high scores in those areas, meaning they're very resilient, because we all know why that's important, right? Like uh, you're going to get told, no, everything's going to suck. You're going to have setbacks. I mean, if you can't, if you can't get back up when you fall, then, you know, I mean, that's going to be the thing that's going to help. Same for you. 
stick with the business, right? And then risk taking that you gotta, you gotta, <laughs> you have to be daring, right? To even go into this world and then even remotely be able to survive and to take the risk to maybe make sure you get the opportunity that's in front of you, even though you have no idea how it's gonna work out. Creative so that you can come up with ideas and be spontaneous even at times because you need to be thinking of these, you know, things that are gonna come up. The work ethic, you don't have to be so totally competitive, competitive and driven per se, but you have to have a solid work ethic and be able to follow some kind of structure. And because and, no, no one's going to wake you up in the morning and be like, you have to be at work at this time other than you. Everybody wants mm-hmm. to be their own boss, but they don't want to boss themselves. Me, as an employee, there's so many times as my own employee and boss, I should have been fired. Like I should fire myself often for the type <laughs> of employee that I am. And as a boss, I would quit myself. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, like seriously, you know, and then charisma, right. To be able to do what Irene said, you got to be a salesperson, right? And if you're not, then you better figure out someone who's going to sell for you because if you don't have the charisma and the energy, the people skills to like engage someone to even believe in you or your product, well, everyone's going to look at you like you're crazy. Cause like Mike said, everyone's, you know, coming at that person. And if you can't like get through the crowd and make that happen, then you better find someone who can. So I think, again, it goes back to the whole figuring out the team, like who can do all these things if you don't have those particular traits and or don't have them in abundance, then it could be a struggle for you because you're driven by different things and you won't be able to sustain everything that has to happen being an entrepreneur. So that's just behavioral science with Kenyatta Turner. Those are great points, Kenyatta. And to tie that in with what Irene was saying, Irene mentioned a lot of employees are not really money motivated. That's absolutely true. We as business owners tend to be, and so we tend to think that everyone is because we tend to think that everyone else is like ourselves. But mostly people want to be comfortable in their job, feel like they're doing something that's worthwhile, feel like they're appreciated, those sorts of non-financial motivators. And as long as they're being adequately compensated, in their opinion, not at the top of the range, but as long as they make enough money to be at a comfortable station uh, financially for where they think they ought to be in in their work position, they'll be satisfied with that. And as a business owner, it's important to understand that because throwing more money at an unsatisfied employee may just cost you more money Mm -hmm. and not actually satisfy your employee. However, some employees are money motivated and especially in sales positions. (laughs) Uh, People who are into sales and seek out a sales position typically are money motivated people. And typically you're going to compensate them with commission compensation that pays them more when they do a better job. And that's better for you as a business owner too. So you got to make that dichotomy work for you in your business. And with the employees who are money motivated and are on your sales team, you use that to your advantage to reduce your fixed costs and strongly motivate them with what works for them by giving them commissions and a low base. Everybody else, don't screw around with monetary incentives and unnecessary compensation that isn't really satisfying them. Give them the recognition and the appreciation and the comfort and satisfaction in their jobs that they really want and pay them appropriately, but not excessively. And good luck figuring that good out. Good luck figuring that out. You, know. <laughs> you can, you can <laughs> call me and I'll tell you. <laughs> I can tell you how to figure that out. It's easy. <laughs> 15 minutes. Kenyatta, you'll be my first phone call if I ever decide to ever take on another employee ever again. <laughs> <laughs> you need to know what their behavioral powers are. We can tell you yeah. what they're motivated by. And you can ask them. And here's the thing. Okay, another moment. You could ask them all you want. They're going to tell you what they think that they're supposed to say. Yeah. And they're going to tell you what they think is within the realm of you to give it. 
So that's a tricky and slippery slope because it's still a guessing game and you still might get it wrong because they don't really know how to answer that question all the time. They might say they are really motivated by money because they think you're going to give them more money, but they're really motivated by more time off or training. They want, some people want to be trained and mentored and grow and it's hard for them to articulate that. So it's, it's tough, you know, unless you talk to me. Indeed. Well, we've got two minutes left here. So I want to go around real quickly and have everybody uh, give your your most up-to-date tidbit of advice for someone who is going to start or buy a business right now for the first time. So instead of the advice for yourself 10 years ago, this is your advice for somebody today who's about to strike out on their own or buy their first business. What would you tell them? Irene. I would say, don't look back. If you make the decision to do this, if you open that door, just go in. Don't look back. Don't second guess. Don't think about what can possibly go wrong. Just think that this is going to work. You've got to make it work. There is no other option but to make it work. Good, good just tip. Run with it. Full speed ahead. All right, Kenyatta. Find your clarity and your burning desire. Because if you don't have that, you're not even going to know what you're doing anyway, and you'll quit. <laughs> Solid. Annie. Kelly, Annie. Okay. Sorry. You want to Rochambeau for it, Kelly? <laughs> Go ahead. Go ahead. I just want to like, don't stop. Get it, get it. Like, it's going to be so hard, but it's going to be so awesome. And if you see swim, it's okay, buttercup. You pick yourself up, dust yourself up, and keep on trucking. Try again. <laughs> All right. Kelly? What's your I, I, final tidbit? Hire her. <laughs> yes. Do do what you're good at and outsource everything else. <laughs> Consult with Kelly. <laughs> yes. Yes. Well, thank you all so much for coming. It's been a great podcast. you got to give your tip. Wait, um, yeah, what, what are your two tips? We're out of time. Uh, my oh. tip is uh, use your network and listen to other business owners. You don't have to learn everything by experience yourself. Yes. <laughs> you already said that. my tip would be call mike and make sure you're setting up your business properly all right well we're mike and rochelle fulton and this has been a fun episode of legitimate thank you for tuning in and join us next time for commercial financing what i know no just kidding we're talking about commercial leasing maybe we'll talk about financing too yeah that's right it's going to be commercial leasing for your business what to expect as a a tenant Oh, all right. Tuning in. (laughs) Everyone, do your happy dance. 